this works. Okay. This is Jordan here again for the weekly live stream. I'm here with Gavin Wax. He's the president of the Young Republicans, Young Republicans Club of New York City, which I believe is like the oldest Young Republicans Club or one of the oldest in the nation. It's oldest been largest. 100 years, over 100 years at this point. And, and the cool thing about Gavin is that like you'd expect a Young Republicans Club in New York City to be like a bunch of Rockefeller Republicans. But, um, you know, Gavin's club is... Uh, based Republicans. So <laughs> it's very unique in New York City to have that situation. And, you know, I wanted to bring Gavin on because like you know, a lot of people on social media have been talking about all like the crazy uh, things going on in New York City. Gavin lives in New York City. And um, yeah, you know, with the with the COVID DAX ports and all that stuff. So uh, Gavin has a, has a very interesting story for us. Uh, so from what I understand, um, these uh, some of these restaurants have decided to enforce, you know, these crazy orders. Uh, New York City decided that um, they're going to check your vaccine papers before entering a lot of establishments. And Gavin, apparently at a steakhouse last night, you were denied service. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you know, I, I've been, you know, the order went into effect September 13th. I'm not vaxxed. No interest in getting it. And I've been okay, you know, I've been able to get into places where I know where they're not enforcing, you know, I've, I've slightly changed my lifestyle to accommodate it, but this was actually one of the first like real kind of bad experiences I had. I, I was meeting with some friends, they were out of towners, uh, they were going to the steakhouse, um, we were supposed to eat outside, they moved it back in, I didn't realize some of them, you know, had fakes, uh, I don't, I don't have a fake. And uh, I showed up and uh, they were like, oh, your party's here, but they're at the bar, which kind of pissed me off because, you know, these guys knew I couldn't go in. Uh, and I was and they were like, well, do you have your do you have your Vax card? And, you know, I, I just said, oh, no, uh, don't have it on me. Don't you have a photo? I'm like, no, nah, I don't have a photo because I've gotten away with just saying I don't have it on me. Some of these places, they're not hard asses. You know, they'll, they'll let you through. They don't want to have to do it. Um, not this place, uh, which is a very high end steakhouse. And I've been there before and it's in Midtown. And I think the strongest enforcement is in Midtown because of the tourists and the, the, the central location of it all. Um, so I left and then I go out and then he calls me back and he says, oh, come, come try again. Try again. I spoke to the hostess. You're all good. You're all good. So I go back. I try to get past them and they wouldn't let me pass. And they were like, you don't have it. I, I said, no, I'm not vaccinated. And, uh, uh, I think it's pretty sick what's happening in this country. And at that point, I was saying, you know what? I'm probably not going to get in here. Let me just see. Let me just test their humanity. Let me see. Maybe, maybe you know, there's some hope. Maybe they think that this is ridiculous and, and this is not right. And maybe they can, you know, have some perspective and look at this, the bigger picture. Uh, and boy, was I wrong because uh, there was like five of them behind the hostess stand. And uh, not only were they not sympathetic at all, uh, they when I was leaving and I left, you know, calmly, whatever, they, they started yelling at me, swearing. They, they said, you know, fuck you, asshole, suck my dick. Uh, you're a piece of shit. All these things in a very high end steakhouse in front of customers. This like I, and I, that, I, I, my jaw dropped. I was shocked. And I'm like already across, I'm already up the stairs, like one foot out the door. So I started yelling back at them, like, fuck you guys, you fucking assholes, like eat shit, whatever. I don't remember. It was all heat of the moment. Yeah. And these guys were just brainwashed, brainwashed. In the back of my mind, I was looking at them and I'm like, come on, like, do you really want to do this? Like, are you really going to go the extra step? But they are. And it just goes to show 
you know, de Blasio knew what he was doing because he's putting New Yorkers against New Yorkers. They're self-enforcing. There's no sheriff around. There's no, you know, city officials. This is the hostesses feeling, you know, going on a power high like the stewardesses on airplanes. And they just took the law. It's not even really a law. They took the edict into their own hands, so to speak. So. So you don't think that they're enforcing this because they're worried about like the city health department? You think they're enforcing this just as like some weird power trip that's going on? I think these particular employees were getting a rise out of it. It was certainly a power trip for them. Um, I'm sure the owners probably would not have liked them to have said what they said. Uh, it looked bad. It was horrible. It was unprofessional. I mean, you know, you're still allowed to eat at a restaurant outdoors uh, without a vax, which I have done. Yeah. Um, so the fact that they they blew up on me like this just goes to show like they they're going well beyond what's required. And this is the first real bad experience I've had since it started. And it was it was very unsettling. It was it was kind of shocking. Uh, I was really hoping to find some humanity on the other side of that 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 little lectern thing that they have at the entrance to the restaurant. Because you, you think about it, the city, I don't know what the, the, the most, the latest numbers are, but I think it's like close to 40 is 40% is still unvaccinated or somewhere, maybe just shy of that. Then you're talking about the people that are vaccinated. Many of them who I know did it begrudgingly. They were coerced into it. They were forced yeah. to do it. They didn't support it. And then even the people that do support the vaccine, many of them, you know, don't support the mandate. So if you add those three groups together, you're talking about, you know, over half the city at least. So, yeah. you know, I was just doing the math in my head. I'm like, one person behind here has to be kind of on my side. And they were just all total, you know, ideological zombies. And they were just, it was like, it was like a minute of hate. I felt like it was like something like out of George Orwell. They just started like screaming, like hysterics. And I wasn't even in front of them. I was like around a staircase. So it's a sad state of affairs in New York. Yeah, I haven't been to New York city since they implemented the vax passes and like is it is it worth it right now to be in the city if you have not taken you know your latest shots like is it is it like what what's the situation like in, in your day-to-day -day life i mean you have more connections than most people but i like let's say you're the average citizen living on like the upper west side choosing not to take the shots is is there a good life to be had still in New York City right now, or like what would you recommend to people that want to visit who are who have not taken the shots? Uh, it's becoming increasingly inconvenient, as the mayor said, which was the the, the plan all along to make things as inconvenient as possible. Um, I think you said it right. I've been able to get by. I know a lot of restaurant owners. I'll go to Hoboken. I'll go to Long Island. I'll cook at home. I'll sneak in. I'll eat outdoors. I have changed my life. Uh, making a decision. But there are certainly a lot of people that, you know, they may not have a lot of the uh, the options I have and it's hurting. And I think they're only going to double down because I really think at this point uh, where we are, the people who are not getting it are not going to get it. It doesn't matter how many incentives or disincentives uh, you apply. I think they've made their decision like I have and they're not going to move. So I think what the, the powers that be are going to do is they're going to double down. And now I think the next step will probably be something along the lines of you can no longer get into an Uber or Lyft unless you're vaccinated, right. which will really impact me because that's practically all I take. Uh, and then maybe even not going to a grocery store, not going to an office. Um, you know, I, I'm lucky because my job doesn't care and I'm able to get around it. But, you know, a lot of people aren't. So I, I really it, feel bad. It's crazy because, you know, New York City is still the financial capital of the world, arguably, even though I just saw that um, Ark Invest has they're moving down to Florida. So that's yeah. another, uh, I guess, 
semi right wing institution that you guys are losing up there. And, and you know, it, it's crazy to see that now that Cuomo has resigned, speaking of New York politics, that you have this lieutenant governor, the interim governor, she seems to be politically speaking with the COVID mania stuff, she seems to be even significantly worse than them. Like Cuomo, I think you could say was weirdly pragmatic. Like he didn't really genuinely care about the COVID stuff. It was more just like a political game for him. But she's like wearing uh, necklaces that say like get vaccinated and stuff. Like she seems to be a real ideologue, huh? No, you you made a great analysis there. I mean, there was a few. There's a few things going on. One, Cuomo. Yes, I don't think Cuomo is ideological. He's about power. Uh, you know, the Cuomos of 20, 30 years ago are very different than the Cuomo family today. Uh, and they've changed with the tides. They've changed with the Democrat Party. Uh, you know, I think if they were born in another state, if they were a political dynasty in another state, their politics would have shifted to that state. They, I don't think they had any real views. Um, and I think he was pragmatic, which, you know, maybe could have been a, a good thing. Uh, and the other good thing about him, whether you want to admit it or not, is his baggage. He had a lot of baggage uh, and that applied political pressure. So his 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 Me Too scandals, the nursing home scandals, the corruption scandals, Buffalo Billions, whatever it is, those scandals weighed on him and it allowed you know people to apply pressure to him where he felt that he needed to do things to win over more support. So the, the only reason New York really started to come out of the lockdowns was because of the scandals. And he started to really reel things back, which I thought was a good thing because, you know, politically speaking, there's, we don't really have a lot of options in New York. It's a one party city, one party state. So these outside pressures on Cuomo uh, were a good thing. Just looking at it from a, from a freedom perspective, he was rolling things back. Um, the problem with Hochul, uh, there's a few problems. One, she presented herself even more of a moderate as Cuomo. She was brought onto his ticket to moderate in an upstate yeah moderate Dem, previously ran on the conservative line, you know, Irish Catholic family, was endorsed by the NRA. You know, she she doesn't come across as the kind of typical woke individual, but I've heard stories that she's, you know, consumed with wokeism, hook, line, and sinker. And she also has a very quiet kind of political background, meaning she doesn't really have a lot of scandals or baggage. So I think she is, like you said, an ideologue. She has no baggage. She's coming in with a clean slate. Uh, so she's basically able to restart everything the COVID maniacs wanted uh, without any, you know, uh, issues with, you know, grabbing asses and 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 kissing people on the cheek. Um, so I think it, we're, in a, we're in a worse position. And because she presents herself as a moderate when she is so far governed anything but. Yeah, that's great political analysis that we want our Democrat politicians compromised as yeah. compromised as possible, right? We the don't, best we part don't want to put his reputation back against the wall when his back was against the wall and he had to do things. I mean, he would not have gone ahead with the firings of a hundred thousand uh, medical personnel. He wouldn't have, but he would not have had the political capital to do it. And I was very upset that the Republican establishment and many on the right or center here in New York State and across the country were calling on him to resign. I said, first off. This is so this is so short sighted. Keep him on the ballot as long as you can, because if he's at the top of the ticket, come the gubernatorial election next year, you actually have a shot not only to win the governor's race, but to possibly flip back a legislative chamber and help down ballot. You want him at the top of the ticket Two, from a perspective of justice. There is no if you're, if you're just talking about justice and not, you know, electoral math here from a justice perspective, there is no justice in him resigning on his own terms you know, giving himself two weeks to close out contracts and deals and clean up his staff. There's no justice there. If you want a real justice, it would have been indictments and he would have actually, you know, suffered. I could maybe accept that. 
But the way that it happened was the best case scenario for the Democrats and for him. He left quietly into the night on his own terms. Nothing's ever going to happen to him. He's sitting on like an $18 million campaign fund, which he's going to use to go after political opponents to reward his patronage. You know, he had two weeks or so before he had to resign to close out any last minute corrupt deals. He left, he left like a king. Uh, yes, he's not going to have a political future and he was very ambitious. Okay, boo-hoo. But the way he left was not good. And now we've set ourselves up for a far worse situation. We were starting to move in the right direction, uh, believe it or not, when Cuomo was still in office um, and people were too short-sighted to see it. Yeah, what's fascinating is that I, I think a lot of people that don't follow New York so closely realize that the person who kind of like put the last nail in his coffin was the AG who wants his job, right? <laughs> so it's like such he was the AG before at one point. Right. So uh, what do you what do you think? I, I know that you've been campaigning for uh, Republicans and and you've been pretty optimistic about at least, you know, shaking up New York City, maybe trying to get someone in office there that isn't a Democrat. Um, what, what's this? What's the state of affairs right now? Is there any hope? So uh, the first thing you said with Letitia James, yes, you know, she came after him. Uh, she is not ideological, uh, which is a good thing. She's lazy. She's part of the machine, but she's not ideological. She went after him. She after she actually went after GameStop. She never really did anything. She starts these things and she says some things that are good. You know, she was the one who uncovered really uh, from a you know a concrete evidence perspective what he did with the nursing homes. So you have to give her credit for that. Um, so she sometimes has good instincts, and I've heard she's a nice woman. Um, so she probably wouldn't be the worst person ever. Uh, I think she may be better than Hochul. And I, and, you know, at first I was thinking maybe Hochul would be okay, but you know, I was wrong on that front. Um, but yeah, she definitely wants his job and that's the only reason uh, he fell. And, and he made a lot of enemies. He was, he, he was basically like a, like a mafioso in New York politics. He strong armed people. He pissed off the progressive wing. Uh, he overplayed his hand. He just used brute force and a coalition basically formed uh, within his own party and the Republicans that were going to knock him out. He lost all his institutional support. And that was of his own doing. Uh, he he didn't realize the situation he was in until it was too late. And and basically every figure in the Democrat Party wanted him gone because he was creating too many problems for them. And even with all their institutional control in the media and elsewhere, they couldn't cover up for him anymore. Uh, but that fall from grace and how quickly it was is, is something people probably write, around, write about for a while. Because I remember in the summer, you know, I had friends, you know, kind of moderate Democrats. Long Island, you know, they were infatuated with this guy, with the videos, with the folksy shtick. I mean, he, he was a god for a period of time. And he was even well, media. Know, the media loved him. The media loved him. And he, he he I've never seen such a quick fall from grace. And 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 it's interesting. But as far as New York is concerned, I mean, look, we're at we're at low as it gets. I mean, they have basically super majorities in the legislature, they dominate everything. Uh, the party has never been at a lower point here in New York. Uh so you know, my optimism just comes from the fact that we're, there's nowhere else to go but up. And they've hit this one party rule. Uh something has to give. I'm not saying it's going to be overnight, but I think they've built up this one party rule based on a coalition that I think in the long term can't be sustainable. Uh, there is many different factions in this coalition. You know, you're uniting these kind of technocratic laptop class, upper west side, upper middle class whites with working class Hispanics who are just interested in sort of, you know, uh, wheeling and dealing economic handouts that are not about wokeism, you know, from everywhere in between transactional Orthodox Jewish votes in the outer boroughs. I mean, there, there is a very broad coalition to the Democrat machine in New York City and New York State that can only be sustainable um, under, you know, a competent sort of leadership, good economic times, 
uh, and a whole lot of other things. So I think it's not going to be this cycle. It's not going to be next cycle, but the time is ticking. Something will give. And I think, you know, that's a white pill for everybody. Uh, I think in a place like New York, you know, I, I have been excited about Curtis, uh, you know, running for mayor, Curtis Sliwa. Uh, I think he could build a coalition. That's very unusual. He's not a typical Republican. He's a populist. I don't agree with him on everything, but I think he is the kind of person who could move the needle in the right direction. Uh, he, he, he's, you know, I'm not 100% sold on everything he's been doing lately, but he's still the best shot we've had in a while. I think he's going to do a lot better than the, the previous two contenders who only got like 24 and 27% respectively. I think he entered the race with like a 35% baseline just with his name wreck. And the fact that he's so idiosyncratic in his political views, you know, things like UBI, uh, you know, he's he's all over the place. So he could pull together kind of a motley coalition. He's running against someone kind of like Hochul, this former NYPD cop, kind of presents himself as a moderate former Republican, uh, Eric Adams, who, you know, is doing the, 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 the Hamptons wine tours, you know, fundraising presents himself as a moderate. He's part of the Brooklyn machine. He's a crook. He, he may be, a, he's probably a bad guy, but as someone, one of my friends told me, he may end up being a half decent mayor. Uh, I think you can't get any worse than de Blasio. Um, right. but yeah, I mean, it, it's a sad state of affairs. I think between the governor's race, the mayor's race, uh, you know, we can move the needle a bit. But uh, I think now that there's full Democrat control of New York, everything that was on them uh, and it, and I think, you know, based on the way they're governing and the way they're they're running things, I think it's going to be a pretty steep decline economically, uh, demographically. Uh, and, you know, that may actually help them. That's the thing. I think Republicans bring up, the, you know, the mass exodus from New York and the economic woes. Those are not necessarily going to do anything to dent the political machine's power. You know, right. a, a population leaving the state that generally would vote for Republicans. A lot of the people who left New York, Long Island, upstate, Hudson Valley, moving to, you know, your, your beloved state, Florida, they end up voting Republican. They're not leaving the city. They're not leaving, you know, their comfy Upper West Side apartment. They're leaving, you know, suburban New York. Uh, so that's not necessarily going to chip away at the machine. And the economic issue, yeah, the, the economy is going to get worse. Small businesses are going to close. They're a good constituency for Republicans. Uh, and more people are going to enter, you know, welfare roles. None of that is going to stop the political machine. It's only going to solidify it. So I think when Republicans talk about these things, thinking it's going to change, it's not. I think the only thing that's going to change is the Democrat coalition fracturing because they have cobbled together so many different competing interests uh, that without a common enemy, it'll start to fragment. And I think that's the best shot. It's going to be fragmentation along ethnic, religious, socioeconomic lines. And I think that technocratic cosmopolitan base of the party that runs all the institutions, you know, based in Manhattan is going to have a very hard and that's largely white uh, and college educated is going to have a very hard time uh, keeping you know, outer borough blacks and Hispanics and other groups in line. I think that's the only uh, positive takeaway we can see in years to come. Yeah, that's the thing is like, you know, a lot of these policies like the VAX passports are extremely discriminatory. And from what I understand, the, uh, you know, the black community in New York City and in most urban areas has been the most um, unwilling to take the shots. Um, I think based on righteous understanding of history with you know, U.S. government forced experiments on, um, you know, um, disenfranchised communities sometimes. And so is, is, is it is it OK to classify like what, what's going on in Manhattan and places like this? It's like almost a, a backdoor form of discrimination if you're not allowing um, because like these communities tend not to take the shots. So the people you're just basically like creating a political bubble 
but in reality, you're also, you know, you're discriminating based on race too. Yeah. So I, I argue with these kind of establishmentarian Republican consultants all the time. And I tell them, I say, this is not a right wing issue. I mean, there have been massive protests in New York spontaneously every other day, thousands of people marching across the Brooklyn Bridge, marching down the avenues. Many of them are municipal workers. They're union members. They're in the teachers union. And the vast majority of them just using your eyes and looking into the crowd. They don't look like me. They don't look like you. Many of them are black and brown New Yorkers. And they come from the outer boroughs and they come from lower socioeconomic uh, levels of society. And this is an issue that has crossed party lines. It has it could present the possibility to create a dent in the Democrat coalition. But Republicans are too cowardly and too out of touch to capitalize on it. And I have seen these protests. These are not Trump supporters. These are not right wingers. These are very much people uh, who are either apolitical, removed from the political processes and are just upset with what's happening. And they could present a viable electoral path for someone to take advantage of, whether it's Curtis or someone else, because these are people probably are not registered to vote, probably have never voted before. And this idea that you're going to flip Democrat voters uh, to vote Republican because of, you know, the economy's down and people are leaving. It's BS that the dichotomy between, you know, the two political ends of our country are so wide. There are no crossover voters anymore. That doesn't exist. There's none of these people that are sitting there like, oh, you know, I'll vote for Mitt Romney one year and I'll vote for Dem another. Like that doesn't exist anymore, especially in New York. You know, you're a Democrat, you're a Democrat. You're the few Republicans, you're the few Republicans. You're only going to win by bringing in new voters and, and converting people who were apolitical, I think the vaccine issue is massive. You take that 40% of people who, as we mentioned earlier, their lives are extremely inconvenienced. They have a reason to go vote because they you know, are, are suffering you know, direct consequences of this policy. People who are vaccinated, they don't give, most people who are vaccinated will not care about the mandates. It doesn't change their life in a meaningful way. There is that small segment of the population that are fanatics, but you're never gonna change their vote anyway. But you could definitely shift a lot of people through turnout. If you get that 40 to 30% of the people to turn out on election day, they could be a 50% vote on election day. But but to your broader point, is it discriminatory? 100%. I mean, this is just, you know, the, the Democrats are the party of the neo-aristocrats, the neo-elites. They, they literally look down with contempt at anyone else who doesn't march in lockstep with their worldview. Uh, and their worldview is, you know, generally completely out of touch and insane. Um, but nonetheless, they view you as a lesser being. They have dehumanized you in their head to many, in many ways, uh, if you don't get the vax, uh, if you don't, you know, you know, regurgitate technocratic talking points, if you're not, you know, uh, uh, this kind of globalist neoliberal. Um, and, you know, I think that's going to create this situation where many of these, you know, disenfranchised uh, minority communities in New York are going to start to wake up and push back. There was a situation at Carmine's, an Italian restaurant on the Upper West Side, where these uh, these a few tourists from Texas who were black, black females, they were denied. They got into a scuffle and an altercation. Um, were they justified in what they did? Probably not. I don't know all the details. I don't know what the hostess said. I had a situation last night, you know, being a white Jew from New York, I had some people yelling stuff at me. I didn't handle it the way they did, but maybe they claimed that she did use a racial epithet. Maybe it happened. Okay, but to be discussed. But then BLM started protesting outside Carmine's. Uh, 
Good, which was right? I mean, good. It, yeah, but it was annoying it, because they, there was this massive it, protest, but they didn't direct it at the people who enacted the policy. They enacted it at this business stuck between a rock and a hard place. And I think that's what the Democrat machine is trying to do when these situations come up. They're going to redirect uh, the anger and frustration towards the business owners rather than themselves yeah. policy enacted. And, and the Democrat machine is so cowardly. They have a you know, a Soviet style mega majority in the city council. There's like two Republicans, three, one's a rhino, but like two Republicans in the city council. They could have passed the mandate legislatively if they wanted to. They chose not to because they definitely see that there's ma major issues with it. They did it by edict, the mayor's office, uh, and no one's pushing back. No one's challenging. And, and the anger is being misdirected at businesses. People are fighting each other rather than directing at them. And we have, you know, an entire legal class full of lawyers and jurists who are too cowardly to take this clearly unconstitutional order on, which is the most infuriating thing. Yeah, I do think, however, that these businesses that choose to enforce these measures, um, there comes a point in time where you need to stand up against like these anti-humanitarian measures and like clearly discriminatory. So while I sympathize a little bit with these businesses i don't so much mind if like you know the blm hecklers are going to come out because like it's still them participating in the system is still wrong and right. i think there there comes a point in time where you need to make a stand against something and like the whole go along to get along attitude that these corporations have had towards this stuff is one of like the major problems you're right and even people who who uh, get fake vax cards have infuriated me because you're basically buying into the system in a way. Like I'm not getting a vax card and I generally am not partaking in businesses that are going to deny me services. Um, and we saw recently that business is down 40 to 50% or even 60%, I believe for restaurants. And that's down from the lows that they had from the lockdowns and all the other restrictions and they're suffering and they should suffer. And I, I do agree with you. Where is their restaurant associations? Where are these industrial associations, commercial, uh, you know, uh, professional associations and organizations that they pay massive dues to that they throw all these lavish banquets and they have all this money. Why haven't they hired some top tier lawyers to take this down? Uh, they filed this one crap lawsuit I saw that didn't even show harm. And then, of course, the judge struck it down and the judge struck it down. So it was like, this is a, frankly a shit lawsuit. And he was basically saying, I kind of agree with you guys, but like this is a sloppy piece of crap lawsuit. And 8 million people in the city, you can't find one lawyer with the balls to put his name on a suit that would clearly win and is clearly in the right. People are terrified. And I don't think these this, this mandate could really withstand uh, even a liberal court in New York. I think it's so egregious how it was pushed through, how it's being enacted. Uh, and, and there's so many things in it to go after, the lack of religious exemptions, the lack of uh, uh, medical exemptions, uh, the fee structure, the, the lack of appeal, the lack, to, the, the lack of uh, listening, uh, you know, taking into account antibodies, uh, you know, no differentiation between lots of different types of businesses. I mean, there's so many things to go after on it, yeah. even if you want to just chip away on it. But I haven't seen any legal pushback that's been serious and that's infuriating to me. And no one wants to take it on. No one wants to spend the money. And then everyone else across the country just says, oh, it's New York. It won't happen here. And then, you know, um, less than a month later, Biden comes out with essentially a federal mandate and everyone's scratching their head. Like, how can this happen? Because, you know, they pushed it in New York and they saw everyone was too pussy to do anything. Why not push it on, on Idaho and Kentucky and Texas? They're clearly yeah. not going to do anything either. And, and I worry that, like, you're already seeing it. I don't know if you saw the news out of Los Angeles today, but they are imposing in indoor vax mandate on like all New these Orleans. Places. So I think all of these major 
hyper Democrat cities are going to try this move. Um, what's going to be very interesting, I think, particularly in the Northeast, is what happens if you have like a big outbreak among this fully vaccinated um, community in New York City? How do you think? Like, do you think that they're like it, what? What could they possibly roll out at this point moving forward? Because I, I think you know that New York is like you saw. We kind of had like a COVID season in Florida and Texas, and now it's kind of like moving to the Northeast. And it seems like these shots uh, have very questionable efficacy um, and durability and lasting apparently no longer than six months. So a lot of people, uh, you know, are unfortunately going to get sick. It happens every winter. It's inevitable. Um, when that happens, do you think that these politicians, what my guess is going to be is that they're going to like scapegoat Republicans and they're going to say, you know, all these people coming from Florida and stuff like that. Yeah. But do you think that that creates a possibility for them to kind of like roll back these mandates or do you think that like what, what's your sense of like what the politicians are thinking like are they fully committed to this because you said like there's no legal challenges the businesses are mostly accommodating like do you see that the counter revolution coming anytime soon or are they just like full steam ahead of this craziness i mean i haven't seen any signs over the last the, you know the blm protesters which are like apparently the only people that will protest this thing right well, but, and they were being misdirected and controlled anyway i think to a degree but yeah i mean they haven't shown any uh, sign of, uh, you know, admitting that they were wrong on any public policy, you know, decision, public health decision. Uh, they've rarely reversed course. They've generally doubled down, tripled down, uh, almost out of spite, kind of in like a megalomaniac fashion. Uh, I think, you know, if they were to admit in any sense, directly or indirectly, that they were wrong on anything, it would open up a Pandora's box for them. So their only path forward, you know, logically speaking, in their shoes is to continue to go down, to continue to deflect, to, to continue to scapegoat. Uh, and I think the situation in the United States and some of these Northeast states and cities where we're getting these machines and, and these special interests, um, you compare them even to places like in Europe, like we're seeing, you know, in Scandinavia with, with, with Norway, Sweden, Denmark, even places like Portugal, a lot of rollbacks. I think those places... Uh, they seem institutionally a little better off. They're not nearly as captured by special interests, uh, regulatory capture. They seem a little bit more interested in good governance and self-reflection in, in, in good public policy decisions. You know, that's a much longer discussion why that's happening there. So we have seen some examples of them reversing course internationally, even in New Zealand, which I thought was like, you know, basically, you know, Australia, uh, you know, times two at one point, they're even starting to pull back. They say we're never going to get to zero COVID. Uh, and they're starting to realize it's it's endemic, it's seasonal, you know, just like the common cold or the flu and treat it as such. Um, but I think between themselves being so megalomaniac, so, uh, you know, thirsty for power and control and cementing their control um, almost to a cult-like fashion now, mixing it with like this new religion of wokeism meets COVID, COVID fear, whatever you want to call it, that plus the pressures that they're getting from big pharma and other outside forces, which have financial and, and monetary incentives to continue this, I really don't see them being able to roll back uh, in any significant way going forward. I think we're in this downward spiral uh, to the point that the only thing I can see really breaking the cycle is if there is mass noncompliance, a mass pushback, or some other outside force maybe the courts or some legislative action at the federal level to squash it and say it's done. I don't have much faith in the courts. I don't have much faith in what's going on at the federal level. So I think we're going to continue to see this even more 
draconian measures. Like I said earlier, I think, you know, if it happens again, they're going to see well, what else can we mandate? Okay, it's going to be public transit, it's going to be going into offices, uh, they're, they're, they're going to basically uh, make it illegal to live any sort of a life if you're unvaccinated. I think that's the next step. And I think it's just going to become more egregious, more draconian, and 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 more malevolent in how they treat the unvaccinated. Which yeah, is I, find, I find the virtue signaling aspect fascinating. Like when you walk into a major city now, and I, I'm sure this is the, the case in New York, you have people putting the masks on their wrists. And then I suppose they, what do they carry? Like the Vax card in their wallets. Like, yeah. so, so you have all these like identity markers, these virtue signals. Yeah. So, so the masks used to be like, when I was walking around New York last summer, um, the, the mask was on your chin, but now it's, now you, you kind of like wear your mask on your wrist in case you have to like walk into an establishment um, but then, like, a town in Germany or something wanted to give you like little yellow stars. Yes, I mean, it, it's, it's yellow, um, it's like circle badges. I think they need to do that because even in a place like New York, it's such a kind of hive mind, especially in Manhattan. Excuse me, I'll specify Manhattan. Um, many people just assume you're vaccinated. So they'll see me. They know I live in New York. They'll, they'll see me enter into a venue or something and they'll just assume I'm vaccinated. Like it's almost like to them, it's like the idea that someone wouldn't be vaccinated. It's horrifying to them. Yeah, right? it's so alien, it's so foreign. Yeah. And they realize that now a lot of people that are unvaccinated are kind of just, you know, intermingling in society again, getting away with it because they just don't bring it up. So how do they handle that? They need more outward visible signs of your status uh, to really drive home this divide that they're creating in society between the jabbed and the unjabbed. Um, and that's what I'm saying. It's just going to get more grotesque like that. And I think it's going to become, you know, more official. I mean, maybe it's going to become an official badge or something you need to wear uh, is the next step. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's I, yeah. I, a lot of the stuff they've rolled out. I never would have thought in a million years they would have done. So I'm scratching my head trying to figure out what their next step is. Yeah. It, it seems like, you know, there, there's just anything is a possibility at this point. And, and, like you said, the yellow badges in freaking Germany is just yeah. insane. But yeah, it's a good segue because like you were talking about, you know, how people entertain politics in New York City and the New York City Young Republican Club is so different because like you come from like this very uh, populist, like pro-Trump uh, world view. And, you know, I grew up in New Jersey right outside of New York City. And like we were kind of you understand that a New York, New Jersey Republican, when you're living in the Northeast, is like someone that's basically like, you know, I want lower taxes and that's really it. I don't want to fight these culture wars. I don't really want to do anything. Just like, you know, don't tax me to death. Don't give me communism and, and I'm good. But you have created a very different establishment. Has the New York City, like, so under your leadership, has the New York City Young Republicans Club changed significantly? Like, were they Rockefeller Republicans before you? Or are you, are you not supposed to, like, badmouth them or anything? But, like, I, I'm wondering how how it became a place where, like, you have all these, like, fascinating national-level-based um, speakers that are showing up at your events with with, bi with a big attendance in, in the heart of New York City, which is just, like, shocking me. How did this happen? Look, it's a good question. So uh, I'll start with the history. The club was the Rockefeller Club. Nelson Rockefeller was a member. David Rockefeller was a member. John Lindsay was a president. You know, Thomas Dewey was a chairman. Jacob Javits was a member. I mean, the liberal Northeast establishment of old, which dominated the Republican Party essentially till Goldwater and the Reagan Revolution, 
their biggest base of operations was this club. This club was the training grounds. You know, they had thousands of members back in the day, a lot of money. They were very influential. Uh, they controlled a lot of political offices here in New York. And, you know, a lot of people forget New York was a very Republican state for a long time. It was a Rockefeller Republican state, but institutionally uh, it was very dominated by the Republican Party. I mean, in the city, it was maybe a little different, but the state as a whole uh, and large parts of the city, it was very much Rockefeller. And our club was very much part of that. I have lots of historical records uh, that that cement that fact. And, and the club was a big part of staffing the Rockefeller administration, the Lindsay administration, Eisenhower, you know, all these different groups. Uh, it was very much a self-described liberal Republican club. Uh, there were conservative factions throughout the years. There were different internal fights. It's very interesting uh, in the Goldwater era. And then, you know, eventually it just kind of declined in the 70s. And many, you know, there's many alumni who are still in the city and I'll reach out to them, you know, for... And they think you're crazy, basically. And they think we're crazy. They're just like, oh, I'm not a Republican anymore. I, I change yeah. parties. I don't associate. So, and, and some of them are still technically registered, but they, they're just like the last holdouts of Rockefellerism. Um, you know, the interesting thing about the Rockefellerism is that even uh, the moderate wing of the Republican Party today and the neocons are still to the right of many Rockefellers. Wow. Um, if you think about it, I mean, you know, a John Lindsay is is basically kind of to the left of a, of a Charlie Baker, even yeah. uh, only to the left of Liz Cheney and a lot of the others. I mean, I think there's a lot more divisions in the party than people like to give them credit for. I know a lot of people like to just kind of lump all the moderates together, but there are nuances and differences. Um, but yeah, so the club was like that. And it was like that until just we took over. I mean, if you look at videos from 2016, 2015, uh, the leadership was all very much never Trumper, establishmentarian types. They were ranting and raving about Trump, et cetera, et cetera. But the club was on its deathbed. Uh, it had no members, it had no money. Uh, it, it was this hist it was this legacy institution with with nothing left. And they basically approached us, me and a few others, uh, to take it over because they didn't know what else to do with it, and they didn't think we were going to do much with it. And we kind of just quickly took it over, coup d'état, wiped the floor, changed the bylaws. And one of the things they told us in kind of the transition says, you know, I know you guys are a little more right of center of us, but you know, stay away from Trump. You know, it's not going to do well in the city. You're not going to get the crowds. You're not going to get anything like that. I said, yeah, 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 sure, sure. Just give us the bank accounts, give us the social media, and we'll, we'll talk about that later. Right. We went all in on Trump. We went all in on 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 being right wing, on being conservative, on being populist. Um, you know, the, the terms are still kind of in flux, and everything's still being defined as we go on. But we went right, and the club exploded with growth. And uh, we've never had more members. You know, we're, we're I mean, we have in the past, but we're you know we're we're hitting almost nine hundred members now. When I took over, we had less than fifty. Uh, we have a clubhouse in Manhattan. We had in a clubhouse in 60 plus years. We've thrown, you know, 300, 400 plus person events easily, especially pre-COVID. We've had galas, you know, in the $100,000 range. We've had massive speakers, like you've said. We've really become a true institution. Um, finances, membership, you know, publicity, every, every metric you can measure. And I'm not trying to just toot my own horn, but tying it back to the ideological side of things. I think that was a massive component. We obviously professionalized and, and we improved internal structures, but from the ideological component, I think a lot of that, that view of the Rockefeller Republicanism, it's dated because it only existed when the party had institutional control. The second the party started to lose institutional control, there really was no reason to be a Rockefeller Republican or be a liberal Republican. And those people simply changed to becoming Democrats. And when there's no real pathway through the party apparatus to get elective office, to get patronage jobs, to get whatever. Uh, if you're going to be a Republican, you might as well be a principled one. And that's what we found because the, the party has been dead for so long in New York and New York City, for the most part dead. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being hyperbolic. 
what's what's the point of not being principled? You might as well just be principled and, and unabashedly conservative because there is no nothing to gain by being wishy-washy. You're not going to get elected no matter what you do, and you're not going to move up the party ranks because there's really nothing to move up from. Uh, so the people that are Republican in New York, they're very Republican. In fact, I would take our average member against a good old boy Republican from a red state any day. And we get into fights very often with other states in the National Federation. Um, we're known as, you know, these people that fight everybody because uh, we have principles and we stand on them. But we fight for, we fight people from very deep red states, whether it's like Missouri or wherever, over issues all the time. And it's sad because we're in a state where there is no Republican Party, but we're much more principled. We're much more pro-Trump than these people who are representing the party and the institution in deep red states. So I think that's a massive problem uh, in the Republican Party as a whole. There's still this institutional capture by people who are just not committed uh, to the views of the base and the average Republican voter who are still very out of touch. If anything, I think it goes to something to be said about cities in general. They are kind of the avant-garde of the culture and even of the politics we're in the belly of the beast. We're in New York City, you know, where we stand on the issues and how we present ourselves and how we, uh, you know, advocate is the future of the Republican Party because we're already living in what the future of the country is probably going to be in 20, 30 years. Um, it's just the rest of the country hasn't realized that yet, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's a very inspiring story, you know, how you were able to turn around basically a dead um, Republican establishment in New York City and have all of these members and all of these guests that are, you know, so willing and so fired up to advocate for these causes that people had essentially forgotten about in New York City. So I guess, although like a lot of people are pessimistic about the future in New York, you know, if it goes to show, you know, you can still build a coalition of like-minded people who are kind of like, you know, in the shadows right now, I think, kind of fed up with what's going on. And now might be a, another golden opportunity with all the craziness going on in New York to see you know, you might not win an election for three or four years, but maybe, you know, down the road, you have a significant caucus and, and going from there. And, you know, whenever there's these like crazy totalitarianism, whether, you know, historically speaking, there's always some kind of reaction to it. And sometimes the reaction is, um, you know, an enforcement mechanism, but a lot of times it creates this, you know, push against it. And I, I think that, you know, there's still... Um, good reasons for at least the, the, what you have been able to do in New York City. You know, if someone told me that story, um, like, let's say it's 2012 and someone's like, oh, yeah, this this guy's going to take over the Young Republicans Club and they're going to be like, you know, based right wingers and, and they're going to support this guy that is like uh, universally despised by the liberals. I'd be like, you know, forget about it. But somehow you you managed to do that. And it's pissed off people because it's 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 proven a concept. It, it's shown results. Uh, I can't tell you the amount of people that have come to our club since Trump lost, since the COVID stuff, uh, who have changed, you no know, party affiliation, who have you know been red pilled, quote unquote. Uh, we have never been bigger. We have never had more energy. And you know, I hate to talk about it, but you know, I, I'll say it. We have been more diverse. It's it's ironic that the people we replaced it from were all kind of like these very waspy. Uh, you, you know, kind of established people. And they're the first people to accuse us of being racist. They're the first people to accuse us of, you know, being bigots or whatever the, the new pejorative is du jour. Um, but, you know, we, we didn't pander. We never pandered. They pandered. They pandered all they could and they could never get results. We just came out and we said, this is what we support. 
you know, this is what we believe in. Uh, we don't give a crap. If you think otherwise, we have principles and beliefs. And if you build it, they will come and people appreciate that. They respect that. No one respects people that pander. No one respects people that are flaky and don't have principles. And it's been a, it's been a huge, you know, success. And I think, you know, with the cities, you can't abandon the cities because the cities determine culture. The cities determine a lot in society. A lot that we see in our marketing and our media and uh, our pop culture is based on, you know, the first ads they run on the subway. So we saw that that woman ripping down those OK Cupid signs on the subway. Those yeah. signs on the subway, I see advertising on the subway that it doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. And then six, seven months later, it's everywhere, digital, out of home, whatever. It's always starts here and moves national. Um, we see that we have to push back against that. You can't give up the cities, you can't give up institutions. You can't just retreat to your ideological ghettos. That's why, you know, I know you're a big advocate for Florida, but, you know, I think, you know, moving to Florida, yes, it's good. Do it. You know, it's a great state, but, uh, I think they're eventually going to come for Florida. I think it's, uh, it's eventually going to, something's going to happen. It's, it's not going to just make things go away. If you seed ground, that's never a winning strategy in war and battle or whatever. And we are in a war and, you know, here in New York, you're going to need to get victories on the margins. You know, you, you look at a place like Pennsylvania, Trump maybe held the line at 30% in PA because of maybe a white ethnic vote in South Philly that helped him carry the state. New York, the electoral math is actually pretty simple. If you get 33, 35% of New York City and you hold your Republican areas throughout the rest of the state, you flip the state at the, at the state level. So you abandon the cities, you make the electoral math harder for you and you don't have to win the cities, but if you can, you know, up your percentages here and there, you make a, you make an electoral map that's a lot more favorable to you as a Republican. But I think the strategy of retreating and uh, seeding ground and saying, Oh, we just want to be left alone. It, it doesn't work. It's never going to work. And it's, it's been a losing strategy. Yeah. I mean, in such a divided nation, um, it's very interesting to see how this will play out. You know, there's a lot of advocates for the, the separation to Americas, four Americas, five Americas. Uh, yeah, I don't really see that as feasible. But at the same time, I understand where they're coming from because, um, you know, there's there's a reason why, you know, those, those thoughts are kind of formulating in a lot of people's minds. But in terms of, like, how are you going to divide up the nukes and the military, it's a very complex matter that will probably extend beyond our lifetimes and, I, I think I'm with you, but um, I, I, I encourage people to you know do do what's best for them. But and and the one thing is like you know especially people with like families and I, I, I'm sure you understand like people that have kids and and they don't you know and like well, what happened in California like what are you going to do in California if, if Gavin Newsom it, it, these are some tricky questions if Gavin Newsom's telling your your five year old needs to get the Moderna right so it's like it's kind of a weird issue and um, you know you, you, yeah and I don't want people to think that you know I want you to stay and be oppressed and, yeah. and you know have have really bad things happen to you but I think there are there are times to leave and look if things got to the point that I couldn't sustain you know a livelihood in New York you know if they told me I can't use transportation I can't go into an office. I mean, yeah, I'm going to have to move at that point. I'm going to have to be able to, you know, have enough money to buy food. Uh, you know, push is going to have to shove. But I, I, I just more meant just the kind of mindset I think that exists on the right where it's like, you know, they just want to run and, you know, exist in their own parallel structures and their, and their, and their own worlds. And they think the left is not going to come for them. The mindset of the left is 
They can't allow control groups. They can't allow control groups with the vaccine. They can't allow control groups with different countries implementing different policies like we're seeing in Scandinavia. And they certainly can't allow control groups with, you know, internally within a country with people, you know, successfully running a different state like Florida or, you know, trying to build different cultural currents outside of the mainstream because that will present an alternative that will show uh, that there's other options. So they have to squash it brutally. And, you know, that's what they're doing to your governor uh, in Florida. And they're and they're demonizing Florida and they're constantly gaslighting about Florida because, God forbid, anyone actually was willing to accept that maybe Florida isn't this hellscape that they painted it to be. It shatters their worldview. So that's why the national divorce stuff, to me, it's like it's naive on so many levels because one, it'll never happen. Two, it wouldn't be a good thing. And three, they, they, they just they won't allow it. They'll, they'll never allow that. There's never going to be any kind of peaceful separation. You'll have a national divorce, but it'll be a bloody one. And then whatever's left, you know, could also suffer because it'll just be a weaker rump state that, you know, there could be other issues. So, yeah, for sure. Gavin, really appreciate you having you on. Um, how can people reach you? Uh, thank you for having me. This was awesome. Great discussion. Uh, big fan of yours, but you guys can follow me at Gavin Wax. Uh, that's on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, everything else. If you're interested in the club, it's uh, nyyrc.com at nyyrc.com. And all my columns are at uh, Town Hall, uh, American Greatness, Newsmax, and all the rest. Good stuff. Appreciate it, Gavin.